Today's reading is found in Isaiah 49 and 50 and can be found on page 6 in your bulletin. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, my Lord, my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers, and those who laid you waste, go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce, with which I sent her away, or which of my creditors is to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? 
Behold, my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Moore, one of the pastors here. And if you're, again, visiting us, we're glad you're with us in this fourth week of Advent as we uh, await Friday, Christmas, um, uh, the birth of our Savior. Uh, But if you are visiting, I'd love a chance to get to meet you after the service, as would any of our staff um, or elders here, but we're glad you're with us. Um, Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we open your word in Isaiah 49, we pray that you would be with us. We pray that your spirit, as you promised, would be among us, that you would open our eyes and ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, uh, so that we may grow and produce a fruit, um, which is another way of saying that we may change, and we would do so uh, for your glory alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I guess it was this morning, but seems like it was last night at midnight, um, marked the 15th anniversary, anniversary of Ada and, and I's engagement. Um, no, don't worry, we're not that couple that sort of, you know, sprung for some major celebration uh, trip to celebrate the engagement. Uh, we did realize that at some point in the day <laughs> that this was, oh, this is actually uh, the 15th year anniversary of the day that, uh, we, that I proposed to you. And that was sweet, and we talked about it, but of course, more than anything, like, we are anticipating and thinking about 15 years of marriage, as we'll, we'll celebrate in May. And it's one of these landmarks where you sort of just realize, wow, I mean, somebody could really be committed to your good um, for such a length of time. It's possible. And even, even to be committed to your good when they know so much of your bad. And, uh, you know, if marriage is doing its job, that's kind of hopefully what's happening there, that you're experiencing in many ways uh, how, how committed somebody can be to you in your life, even amongst what, you know, what, what's going on in yours. Maybe you have somebody like that in your life, though. It could be a spouse. Uh, maybe it's uh, a parent. Maybe it's a friend. Um, could even be a boss. Um, somebody that, or a mentor that has been in your life for a substantial amount of time, and it's one of those things where you sort of stop and realize, wow, this person's really been uh, with me since I was in high school. And you begin to sort of step back and sort of kind of, you're in awe of their commitment to your good. Uh, And it's way more than you could have ever have imagined, Uh, especially if you think about what it was like when you first met that person, whoever it is. Well, I want to argue or suggest that this morning, uh, as we look in Isaiah, this is the, the last uh, that, will, that will be in Isaiah for our Advent series, that no, nowhere and in, in no person um, is, is there someone more committed to your good than in God himself. Uh, scripture's suggesting this, putting this before you all the time. That he is actually committed to your good, and he's committed to your good more than actually you can even imagine. And what this does for us as we begin to soak this up over the years of our lives is, is that the consequence of this is that we would actually grow in dependence more and more in and of this good God of ours. And the fruit of that dependence is really it's kind of its own reward is contentment. Because that's what God wants out of our lives. Not so much contentment, oh, that's great. He wants us to depend upon him for all things. Because he who has God, right, has all things. 
And so the natural consequence of that is contentment. And so I want us to see that, especially as we think about uh, where we are in the calendar of the church, which is Advent, as we wait the arrival right, of, of Jesus, which is the sign for us, right, is, is the, 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 the proof that God is, in fact, committed to your good more than you could ever imagine. And because that's true, we can depend on him for things that we can't imagine. And I want to look at three things this morning uh, that because God is committed to your good more than you can imagine, we can depend on him uh, for the things that we can't imagine, such as plans for our own good when our circumstances don't present that, as we'll see in the context of Isaiah 49, that we can actually depend on his love and care for us, uh, that he will be be with us uh, forever that he won't leave us or forget us, and that we can actually depend, too, on his power, which is the ability for him to carry out and do what he promises to do as our good God and Father, okay? So let's look at those three things there as we think about what it means for God to be far committed to our good and well-being more than we could ever imagine. And the first there, we see that we can uh, depend uh, that he truly has good plans for us, plans to redeem us through the servant that Isaiah is talking about. As we looked at last week, as, as, as Darwin mentioned, uh, chapter 49 here in this uh, section uh, talks about, or is referred to as, the, the servant's songs. And this is the, 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 the um, second of four servant songs in Isaiah, where Isaiah is given a vision of how God will come to rescue his people, and the way he will do that, though, is through his servant, hence servant songs. And always with Scripture, context is king. And in this particular section, Isaiah is looking ahead into something that hasn't happened yet. He is speaking not to Judah, which is the southern kingdom where he was a prophet, um, but he is speaking to exiles at a later date in Babylon who are experiencing the worst that could happen, and that is to be conquered and to be removed from your own country, your own land. But for Israel, it was different because their land was what? Theirs because God had given it to them. So for them to be removed from the land was to say as well that God had what in one sense removed himself from them too. And the context then is that Israel, God's people, are captives in a foreign land. They are slaves again, and simply or simply at the mercy of pagan Babylonians. How can this be? And in the context, which is, it is that context, in which Isaiah writes and is quick to say, yes, you are, in fact, captives in a foreign land, but that doesn't stop God's good plans from going forward. He is still uh, working his plan to redeem and to fix all things, and he is doing it through his servant. This is his message to them. And that's what verses 1 to 13 are all about, as Isaiah begins with a shout in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, garnering their attention. And in verses 1 to 4, we, as we travel through, we get this interesting, detailed description, it might be familiar to some of us, uh, of this servant, that this servant will what? Come from a woman. It says, the Lord called me from the womb. All right? His mouth then, also as we, we read about in Revelation 2, is made like a sharp sword referring to his words and what they will do. They will cut, they will pierce, they will bring judgment. Other descriptions follow until we get to verse 6 where we see that this servant will not just be for Jacob, which is another word for the nation of Israel or the tribes of Israel, but this servant will what? Be for the world. 
See that there in verse 6. I will make you, referring to the servant, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And see, immediately, these are God's plans. These are God's plans poured forth from his promises to redeem his people, and nothing has stopped his plans from going forward, not even the sin of God's people, uh, and not even captivity in Babylon, which is brought on by their own disobedience, by the way. And these plans, as we see then, are even better than anything Israel or you and I could possibly imagine. About four years ago, the grandparents took our family on a a trip to Disney World, and it was our girls' first time to do that. I had been once before, um, but hadn't been since. And if you've been or done that, or you can imagine, it's an incredible trip. It's exhausting as well, as you know if you've been there. Uh, But leading up to this trip, the girls, they had no idea what lie in store for them. And... um, I just couldn't imagine what Disney World was like. They'd maybe seen a picture of it on TV or, you know, whatever in a magazine. But even their best guesses would fall short. And for example, we were eating at a McDonald's, uh, imagine that, on a road trip and uh, just taking some time to stretch our legs and play around. And so we tried to find one with with one of those uh, awesome, uh, clean playgrounds. And so they're out there running around playing on that. And of course, they love it. And no one wants to, to get out of there. But of course, we got to keep going. So get everybody in the car. Once we get in the car, we get this. Is Disney as fun as McDonald's? And of course, I had to say, no, no, no. Like you might, we might as well not even go because you've experienced uh, the better half of this. Um, even before that trip, though, uh, we, were, we were at the Fort Worth Rodeo and Stock Show and found ourselves riding some of those carnival rides in the parking lot. And even on those things, is this what Disney is like? Right. No. And no disrespect right, to the Fort Worth Rodeo and Stock Show Carnival, but no, this is not what Disney is like. Right. They just couldn't imagine. Dare I say, God's plans are like Disney when compared to McDonald's playgrounds and carnival rides. Right. They are always better than anything that you or I could imagine. And that's because God is far more committed to our good and well-being than we could ever imagine. Therefore, we can depend on him for what we can't imagine, and that is that he truly has good plans for us, even as captives in Babylon or whatever it is you are experiencing today. Because look, as we even pull back for a second here, God's plans, if we're honest about it, they don't make any sense. Because they what? They involve him giving, him giving up a servant, giving up his son, who will be a light for the nations, our salvation. In other words, his plans involve loving the unlovely or loving the unlovable, as we saw in Hosea. Loving people who haven't loved him, who have left him, in order to what? Offer us paradise. That makes no sense. In fact, it's actually unimaginable. But that's how committed God is to you. That's how committed he is to his people. In reality, we are the ones who are not committed to God in the first place. We are the ones who abandon him and have left him. We are the ones in the garden who wanted to depend on ourselves and not God. And Isaiah reminds not only his audience of this, but us as well. In chapter 50 of verse 1, and what is God saying? If you look at it, I'll paraphrase. He's essentially saying, Israel, look, you feel abandoned? Okay. You feel forsaken? You don't like my plans? 
pull out your mother's divorce certificate. And mother would refer to sort of the, the, the leadership, but also just the Israel as a whole. Pull out the divorce certificate and read what it says. What are the charges? Was it my failure as a husband or was it your mother's failure that ended the marriage? See, what God is doing is he is reminding Israel of their fallen state, of their disobedience, the reason things are the way that they are, which for them was why they were captives in Babylon in the first place. And why, though, is he reminding them of this in chapter 50? Because it's not God who has left his people. It's his people who leave him. And once we start there, right, the story of Scripture changes altogether. We see that the whole thing is one big rescue operation by a loving Father who will stop at nothing to save His children, to know them and to be known Himself. Those are God's plans. And this is what the Scriptures call God's grace. Because grace, what? Always says one thing, that God is far more committed to your good and well-being than you can ever imagine. This is the first point, because God is far committed to our good and well-being than we can imagine, that we can depend on him for things that we can't imagine, which in this case would be that he truly has good plans for us. And just by way of application, when we, we come back to what dependence upon God brings us, it brings us this contentment that he actually commands in Scripture because it's a relying on him uh, completely. But this dependence leads to contentment, which I said earlier is its own reward. And when you know God is working for your plans, when he is working, working for your good because of his plans, you can begin to rest and you can even begin to have joy in the most difficult of circumstances. On the other side of that coin, though, where we find discontentment in life, The places where you uh, feel most discontent are often the places where you aren't resting in the Lord, where you aren't depending on him for those things. Instead, you're depending on yourself, perhaps. You're depending on your own plans and the things that you can control. And so one of the questions we might ask is, is where are you most most discontent in your life right now? And how could growing in dependence upon Jesus for all things, right, that he truly is enough for you, even if I don't get X, even if I don't get whatever it is, but I have you, how could that change your place of discontentment? How could that move you into the direction, right, of depending upon him more and more? Because that's what he wants. And as we begin to look at God's commitment to you, even in his plans, or his plans are so much better than you can even imagine, how does that begin to draw you to trust him more, to give, you more, to give him more of your life? That's what this first point calls us to. Well, this is the first point. God is far more committed to your well-being than you can imagine. We see that in his good plans for us. Let's also see it in his promise to never leave us or forsake us. And that is, we see this uh, in, in his love for us all the days of our lives. After Isaiah reveals God's plan to rescue and to save his people through his servant, verse 13 commands God's people uh, to sing for joy. And it's kind of a chorus. It says, sing for joy. And it says a few other things. But then at the end, it says, for the Lord, what has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. 
okay, let's just close the book and we can go home in, in prayer. But, you know, but then there's this next verse, verse 14. And it just sort of surprises us. But Zion, which is another word for God's people, and you might even refer to it today as God's church. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And you read this and you think, well, how can this be? In an interview with comedian Jerry Seinfeld, uh, he is asked what his definition of success is as a comedian. And just full disclosure, all-time favorite comedian, one of my all-time favorite people probably. Um, but his answer is simple. His, his definition of success, as far as a comedian is concerned, is longevity, survival. And he goes on to talk about this, and after describing the toxic environment that was the comedy world in the 70s and 80s, and, and looking at the sheer number of amazing comedians who are not working today for various reasons, success for him is simply the ability to hang around. It's the ability to survive on your own, because as he says in this business, no one, no one is trying to help you. Everyone is trying to step on you. Therefore, success, it's not money, it's not fame, it's survival. And from any uh, professional standpoint, measure that we could think of, Seinfeld hasn't just survived in the, in the world of comedy. He has uh, thrived by, you know, for uh, for, by, by, by any measure. And the fact that he still is getting to actually do comedy and do it exceptionally well at 65, let alone be the co-creator of the world's greatest and all-time, just best ever sitcom, changed my mind after the service, um, you know, points to that. But in this, in this interview, he, right at the end there, he, he adds this final thought about survival, and he kind of moves from the comedy world to real life. And he says, let's be generous here. And this is all, not my Seinfeld impersonation, but you can hear it coming out. So let's be generous here. Let's say you, you get 43 years of life in this world. And then God says, you know what? I think I'm going to move on to some 18 and 23-year-olds and help them out, give them my best. If you want to hang around, you can hang around. You don't have to leave. But you're not getting anything else from me. It's on you now. I'm not going to ask you to leave. But I'm done with you. Good luck. In other words, what Seinfeld was saying is that in the harshness of life, there's only one person that you can really count on, and it's you. There's no one else. Even God moves on at some point. Now, whether you're a Christian or not in this room, you've thought this at some time. You've experienced this at some time. You might even believe it's true this very moment. And one of the reasons verse 14 is in the Bible, though, is to actually validate that human experience. That's what I love about Scripture, right? It's to validate that experience that sometimes in the harshness of life, in a fallen world, one wonders if the only person you can count on is yourself, one wonders if God has moved on and perhaps forgotten you altogether, sort of like being dropped in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night without anything in sight. Like, am I alone here? Is anybody with me? But with every verse 14 in Scripture, we get a verse 15. And this is what makes this remarkable. We get a verse 15 from God that assures us that what? He has not forgotten us. And that he has not left us. And what does God say? And look at it in verse 15. And he, he kills this with a rhetorical question. Can a nursing mother forget her child? 
I'm just done. You want to ask the question? Ask the question. Right. Is, that, is that a reality? Is that what you're experiencing? Do you feel like God has forgotten you? Absolutely ask that question. Let me, put, let me put that at ease for you. Let me remind you over and over of how wrong that is. But not just wrong, how impossible it is. Can a nursing mother forget her child? Now, the point of the nursing mother illustration is twofold. I, I want us to note before we move on. Can a nursing mother forget her child? No, it's impossible. And that's the point. That's the first point. It's impossible. Right? God is reminding his people in despair, right, that it is impossible for him to forget them. He actually goes on to say, they might, referring that, that, you know, in a fallen world, perhaps there is a mother, even a father, a parent, something that has forgotten their, their child, but not me. I won't. But the second point here, though, is to draw you to his heart. Right? God will not only not forget you, but he actually thinks of you as a mother to her newborn child. And if you've seen this, if you've been there, right, right the mother of, of a newborn child, when that baby is presented to her and put on her chest, there is just an infatuation that can't really be described. Right? There's, a, there's a heaviness, right, because of the responsibility, but also the privilege uh, to now love and to care for this child. And there's a joy that's there because this child is hers. That's how God thinks about you. That is how God thinks about you. And because of this, you can depend on God to love and to care for you, not just until you're 43, thankfully, but all the days of your life, like a mother to her child. Over and over and all throughout Scripture, God is saying, I will be with you. It's one of the most common and prolific statements throughout all of the Old Testament, and it continues right on through the New Testament. It is the final words of Jesus to a dying man on a cross next to his in Luke 23. Truly, I say to you, today you will what? Be with me. We tend to focus on the paradise, but what's the paradise? It's being with him. It's the promise of sending the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascends in John 14, 16. He tells us that this is one of the reasons why the Spirit is coming, so that I will be with you forever. And it's Jesus' final words in the Gospel of Matthew after he gives the church its mission. And behold, right, the, the engine for all this, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's one of the major themes, if not the theme, running throughout all of Scripture. I will be with you. See, it's the Bible that is trying to convince us over and over that God has not forgotten us, that he is in fact with us. We are the ones who grow faint. We are the ones who grow cynical, right? You don't have to leave, but I'm not helping you out anymore, right? It is, we are the ones who grow afraid. But this also enforces our need then, doesn't it, as well, to, to be rooted in God's word where we will hear and be reminded over and over, I will not forget you. Can a nursing mother forget her child? Now, would any of us begin to imagine that the all-knowing, that the all-powerful, that the creative God of the world, right, that he would think about this, he would think this way about us if he hadn't told us? And the answer is no. This is how God is committed to you 
more than you can imagine. And it's why we can depend on him for uh, what we can't often imagine, and that's for him to love and to care for us all the days of our life. And so we come back to sort of our contentment application as we learn dependence upon the Lord. Um, uh, the, the other side of that coin of, of contentment is discontentment. And, and discontentment really shows up in our lives but when, we, when we experience insecurity in relationships. The insecurity of not knowing whether someone will be there. The insecurity of not knowing if, they say, say, if they'll say yes to your request to date them. The insecurity of, of, of just... Uh, do they like me? Whether you've had a boyfriend or girlfriend at some point in time in your life, whether you've got a boyfriend or girlfriend for the rest of your life, um, or just friends, or whatever it is. Right? There's that insecurity of wondering, are they going to stick around? And it just creates discontentment, because that's what insecurity does. And so the contrast to that is how much more than for God's own commitment to us in his word, as he promises to give us the security that we know we want, and that we, we're looking for it in every relationship and everything. That this, will you be here for me? The security, though, of knowing that we will never be alone, and thus the source, then, of true contentment as a consequence to resting completely upon him for everything. That's his gift to you. And where do you need that? Where do you need to be reminded that God is with you Always. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, keep your life free from love of money and be content. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the point is, is he is all we need. And it's the Bible over and over trying to convince us and remind us of this all the days of our lives till we go and be with Jesus. This is the second point that we learn and begin to see that God is so committed to us more than we can imagine in ways that we can imagine. His love for us and his care for us, it will be with us for all the days of our life. Lastly, we can depend then also on his power to deliver us, to save us. Uh, Perhaps uh, maybe the most obvious of the three uh, for an almighty and sovereign God. Uh, what would a sovereign and powerless God look like? Not sure, but verses 22 to 26 are all about the victory and the triumph of the servant. Beginning with verse 22, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And that's all it's going to take. Young, in his commentary, notes how suitable it is to begin with the sovereign Lord that has only to signal and the nations fall into line. Continuing in verse 23, there is a reversal then of action where kings will no longer conquer God's people, but will be submissive to them. By verse 24, if there was any question of God could rescue the captives, whether it's Israel and Babylon or humanity from its sin, that is put to rest in the rhetorical question, can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of the tyrant be rescued. And this, of course, couples with the end of this section in chapter 50, verse 2, that reads, Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? And, of course, the the answer to that rhetorical question is, No, your hand isn't shortened. 
such that you can't redeem. Or yes, you do have the power to deliver. In fact, God is saying that I'm so powerful, I can reverse everything that I once did. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, looking at verses 52b to 3, I can dry up the sea with a word. I can turn river water into desert sand and leave the fish sitting in the sun, stranded on dry land. I can turn all the lights out in the sky and pull down the curtain. And what is Isaiah's point in all this, right? Isaiah's point is that the Lord has promised his people something, and he actually has the power to keep that promise. I don't know if you know this about me, but according to my girls, uh, I am the greatest at making popcorn. And I'm not talking about just throwing a bag into the microwave and hitting a button, right? It's amateur hour. We're talking raw materials here. We got the seeds, right? We got the, 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 the right cooking oil and proportions, heat's in the right spot. Sometimes we're changing that, give or take, depending on the pop, right? We got smell, we got salt, all those things working to make what my girls would say is the best popcorn in the world. They often say, Daddy, why don't you sell popcorn for a living? <laughs> we could make millions. And of course, I sit there and, why don't I do that? Why don't I do that? Um, especially if millions are involved. When I promise my girls, hey, daddy is going to make popcorn tonight, right? That's a promise. They know I have the power and they know I have the ability to both make and to keep. I have the competence, right? I've got the skill. I already demonstrated that. But I also have the authority to do so when I choose. Beyond making popcorn, though, I don't really know what else I have the power to promise or to keep. But what God is telling exiled captives in a foreign land and what he's telling us this morning in this final point is I have the power, which means I have the competence, I have the skill, I have the authority to do what I have promised, which is to be your redeemer, to be your mighty God, the mighty one of Jacob. In other words, there's nothing I don't have the power to do. But then God asks us to do something. And this is the tension that we all feel, and we're feeling it now as we are waiting in this Advent season, and that is he asks us to wait. The end of verse 23, it's sort of a throwaway comment in one sense. Those who what? Wait for me shall not be put to shame. And see, it's the God and this is, this is, the, cha- this is, the, this is the, the, the confusion of this. It's, like, it's the God who has the power to fix my situation. I think about being captives in Babylon. Think about your own context. It's the God that has the power to fix my situation and promises to do so. He also, what? He has a schedule. He also has timing. We're waiting for the Christ candle to be lit. He has a time as to when he is going to do that, what? So he asks his people to wait. And and that might be the most frustrating piece to trusting and depending on this God who is far more committed to your goodwill and well-being than you can imagine. It could be more frustrating to you than seeing that God's plans, though good, are not your own. It could be more frustrating to you, this waiting, right, than the insecurity we have at times as God's people wondering if he truly loves me, if he's going to be there. God, you have the power to reverse creation. I love that. 
Why can't you snap your fingers and fix this, whatever this is for you, and whatever this is for me? We ask ourselves that constantly. But I think what Isaiah is pushing us towards, and certainly what Christmas, right, upon us is, is pushing us towards, is that it's in that space of waiting that God wants to meet with us. It's in that space of waiting where we grow in dependence upon him. And in that dependence, what we learn to know who he is. That's where he wants us. All the while knowing that in his time, right, right, in his time, his planning, the things that we can't imagine that he has promised for us will come to fruition. And see, what Isaiah speaks of, right, we know in full, and we know this to be true as we wait on the arrival of God's servant, which is Christmas Day, right? The, the arrival of Jesus, who is, in fact, right, God's uh, commitment to us, that, that he is committed to our good more than we can ever imagine. Jesus is the fruition of that. It's the final answer to that. And as we look back through this text, Jesus ultimately is God's good plan to us. Jesus is God's testimony to us that his love and care for us is real and that what he will never leave us. But Jesus is also the power of God to keep and to accomplish what he promised us in the first place. It's all there. It is God's answer to us. It is his proof that he is far more committed to us than we could ever imagine. And that's what I want for you all this Friday morning. Wherever you are with Christmas, whatever that is, whether you believe in God or not, I want you to wake up Friday morning and, 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 and smell that tree if you have one. Open that present if you're giving gifts, right? Or whatever beverage, whatever it is you're having. And I want you to be reminded that this day, right, this is, this is one of the, the most fundamental uh, uh, points in, in the church calendar that points to the reality that God is far more committed to me than I could ever imagine. Giving us his son. Giving us Jesus, his servant, for our redemption. In this final uh, bit of this interview with Jerry Seinfeld, he's asked the question, and if you, if you listen to any interviews with Jerry Seinfeld, of course, the question's always asked, why did you leave Seinfeld? Why did you stop after nine seasons? Of course, it's anybody's question if you're a Seinfeld fan. Why couldn't the show keep going? It was so good. And of course, this uh, interviewer asked the question, and this is what Jerry says, And no, I'm not going to leave you with Jerry, you know, it's not our benediction, but here's what Jerry says. I wanted people to have this gift. And I thought that was great. The reason why he stopped the show, he says, because I wanted people to have this gift. He said, I didn't want it to go bad, which, you know, we all know everything's got a shelf life. There are all those wonderful shows that we, that we, that we can remember and watch. Yeah, probably went a couple seasons uh, too far, but it's still good. He didn't want that. He didn't want to experience that, he says, but more importantly, he says, I didn't want the audience to experience that. I wanted them to have this gift to say that back in the 90s, somebody once gave me this great thing one time, and I was extremely thankful for it. That's what Jerry wanted, and nine years just seemed like enough. And that sounds very noble, and it sounds very virtuous of Seinfeld, right? Wanting millions of people that he will never meet or know to have this wonderful gift. Well, it actually holds water when you learn what he gave up to make that gift happen. NBC was so desperate to keep him on for a 10th season that they offered him $5 million an episode 
just to do a 10th season. Doesn't matter how much it stunk. Doesn't matter what the ratings would have been. We will pay you $5 million an episode just to do a 10th season. They'd already paid him a million for season nine. Signing this contract for Seinfeld would have made him more money in that season than in all the other seasons combined. And he said no. He gave it up. And why? Because he wanted you to have this gift. Right? You had no idea until you heard this that Jerry Seinfeld was so committed to your good and well-being and joy and happiness, right? Well, you see the point. How much more for our Heavenly Father? How much more for him and what he gave up? Five million an episode, not even a drop in the bucket for what he was willing to do for you, to demonstrate his love and commitment to you. Right? And, and of course it is way more than we could ever imagine to send his son, Jesus, right, to come and roll around in the mud down here with us just to tell you and to show you and to solidify for all eternity that I will never leave you, I will never forget you, I will be with you always. And why? Because he's committed to our good far more than we could ever imagine. And because that's true, we can depend on him for what we often can't imagine. Whether it's his plans that are good to us, whether it's that he will never leave us, or whether it's his power to keep all that he promises to you. May this Christmas bring us contentment and knowing God's what <clears throat> everlasting commitment to you as people in Jesus Christ, the servant who will come to redeem his people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray now that as we come to your table, uh, that you would be with us, that you would meet us there. Lord, we ask that you would do all these things for your name's sake. Amen.